This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. So, okay, we're just going to keep marching through Mark, uh, and we're actually jumping ahead three or four chapters. Uh, and so just to situate us, give us a little bit of the context. Our story tonight is a little bit odd, um, because on both sides of the story that we're reading tonight, like what comes directly before and after, Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that he's on the road to suffering. Like language that John has used in the past couple of weeks is that in the Gospel of Mark, the cross is starting to cast a shadow over the entire thing. And so in what Jesus is saying and he's doing, um, you can tell that he's marching towards his death. Uh, and that's what makes this particular story a little bit odd. Because one pastor put it this way, uh, the message of our section in Mark is, Glory will come, but suffering comes first. And our story, uh, it's, called, it's called the transfiguration. Uh, and if you're unfamiliar with it, just to give you some context, Jesus transforms and his glory is actually revealed to some of the people who are closest with him. And what makes it odd is that Jesus has just finished telling his disciples, I'm going to suffer. The glory will have to wait. And, th- and in this story, we get a moment of glory. Uh, So I'm going to be reading for us from Mark 9, uh, verses 1 through 8, if you want to follow along. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you for the gift uh, that Large Group is and for the privilege to be a part of it. I ask that you would send your spirit um, and help us understand what's going on uh, in your word. Like, through it, would we know you better, uh, and would we love the people around us better? I ask this in your name. Amen. So this story is a moment of glory. Uh, And so while the overwhelming point of the surrounding passages might be glory will come, but suffering comes first, here Jesus is giving his disciples a taste of glory. And why? It's for the same reason that we need the taste of glory now. It's like food for the journey. That's the phrase I want you to keep in mind. A taste of glory is like food for the journey. And to get at that, I'm going to ask three questions. The first is, are we hungry? The second is, what's the glory? And the third is, will glory satisfy? So first, are we hungry? Author uh, James K. Smith writes, 
quote, we live in a world emptied of all of its transcendence. We live in a world that's emptied of all of its transcendence. And by transcendence, he means something like being connected to something bigger and outside of ourselves that gives our lives meaning. So here's an example of something when it's emptied of its transcendence. Uh, For Christmas, my family never did Santa Claus. Uh, We knew who he was and that supposedly this man left the North Pole to deliver Christmas presents to everyone around the world every single year. Uh, But we also knew that he wasn't real. And I'm sorry if I just ruined Christmas for any of y'all. We weren't supposed to to tell any of our friends this because we didn't actually want to ruin Christmas for anyone. But one time when I was about 10, uh, my sister and I were playing with a couple friends down the road. And my sister just said offhand something about the, our parents buying our Christmas presents. And the kid looked at my sister and was like, huh? And uh, she said, yeah, parents buy the Christmas presents, not Santa. And this kid had a look of shock, horror, and maybe a little bit of anger on his face uh, because his understanding of Christmas shattered all around him. Uh, and such a shattering experience Or the experience was so shattering because Santa supposedly is a transcendent figure. He enters our lives, and for one month out of the year, he gives us something to look forward to. And when you're a kid, Santa gives Christmas meaning. If your family did Santa growing up, do you remember when you learned for the first time that he wasn't real? Again, I apologize if that was like a minute ago. Um, I'm saying all this secondhand, but I'm guessing that moment for you was painful. It was disappointing, maybe even disillusioning when you learned that it was just your parents buying the Christmas presents all along. And so with that in mind, let's think about our world. Richard Dawkins uh, is a part of a group called the New Atheists, and he talks about our universe like this. He says, I think that when you consider the beauty of the world and you wonder how it came to be what it is, you are naturally overwhelmed with a feeling of awe, a feeling of admiration, and you almost feel a desire to worship something. I feel this. I recognize that other scientists such as Carl Sagan feel this. Einstein felt it. And it's tempting to translate that feeling of awe and worship into a desire to worship some particular thing, a person, an agent. You want to attribute it to a creator. In other words, we want to make the universe more than just its physical reality. We look up at the stars and see how grand and beautiful they are, and we want to imagine that there's some kind of transcendence behind it. And most people have done exactly that. The ancient Greeks, for example, when they would look up at the universe and wonder, um, they attributed the universe to to being the place where gods dwelled. So, uh, for example, things like thunder and lightning weren't, you know, electricity, They were the product of God's battling in the sky. And today, Christians do exactly what Dawkins says. We're wowed by scientific discovery, and that rolls up into worship of our creator. We're, you know, it's different from the ancient Greeks because we don't believe Thor's in the clouds. But we want to make the universe transcendent. But instead of leaning into that impulse, Dawkins says this. What science has achieved is an emancipation from that impulse to attribute these things to a creator. In other words, we've launched into the sky and we've seen that there are no Greek gods living there. We understand that storms can produce electricity in the form of lightning bolts 
And science has shown us that the universe isn't as transcendent as we thought. And so now we get to cut off the primitive impulse to see things as deeper than they really are. The universe is empty of its transcendence. And, you know, that's all fine because, yes, Christmas feels a little bit less special when there's no otherworldly being coming to your house. And, yes, uh, a thunderstorm is uh, – and, yes, it would be wild to think that a thunderstorm is not just electricity but a battle of Greek gods. But none of that's real. Santa's not real. Greek gods aren't real. And isn't it better to live in a basic reality that's a little less interesting than in a lie that makes things feel special? Yes, sort of. But every time Christmas rolls around, I didn't even believe in Santa. And a part of me gets sad that Christmas isn't as special as it used to be. It doesn't feel quite the same. And part of me still loves to look out the window and wonder at a lightning, or at lightning during a really intense thunderstorm. Part of me is hungry for some kind of transcendence. And I'd wager that part of you is hungry for it too. Because we're hungry for transcendence, it's especially dangerous when it's not just Santa and Greek gods who are on the line, but when transcendence is actually emptied from things that we hold dear. Uh, Take friendship, for example. We value friendship. We want friendship. And especially in college, our friends are some of the most, if not the most, important people in our lives. Uh, Like, I can look back on some of my friendships in college and think about, like, how much my friends changed me. And just think about how much meaning are invested in those friendships even now. Like our sweetest moments happen in the company of our friends. And in John 15, 15, Jesus picks up on this. Speaking to his disciples, he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, you don't just serve me. You know me. You're my friends. And this point is a little bit deeper than what we have time for. But God is a relational being. And there's a sense in which because God's a relational being, friendship is at the foundation of the universe. So the time with your friends is not just fun and sweet. It feels so meaningful because it taps into one of the deepest parts of reality. Your friends are transcendent. But culturally, we emptied the transcendence out of friendship a long time ago. In the modern world, friendship is just a utility. Our ancestors needed to survive in the wild, and those who formed bonds with others generally survived, while those who tried to go it alone generally died. And so now, you enjoy friendship not because it taps into a deep part of reality, but because it's useful to help keep you alive. This is our culture's reason for friendship. It's emptied of all of its transcendence. Or let's also think about prayer. Have you ever had a transcendent feeling experience in prayer? Like something where it feels like you're doing more than just talking to the ceiling, but that you're actually interacting with a personal God and touching something that's deeper than your eyes can see? If you pray, I'm guessing the answer is yes. And you know, maybe it's a feeling of God's hand on your shoulder when you're struggling, or uh, Jesus just sitting there and being with you in your sadness. Maybe you've had moments when you've been seeking God's face and you feel like you actually find it and you feel and see the joy and love that he has for you. If we empty the world of his transcendence, 
The best our culture can do with that is say that you're in a meditative state where you're in touch with yourself and your feelings. Um, And that can have its place for sure. Like, I think we all could use a little bit more silence and stillness. Like, I'm wondering if y'all are feeling that, like, at this point in the semester. Uh, But if prayer is just meditation, while it can be helpful, the interaction that you feel with God is fake. You're not seeing or being comforted by anyone. It's actually just you alone with you. And if we could push this one step further, if our culture is right and the world is empty of any transcendence, then our story today, the story of the transfiguration, is just that. It's a story. It means that some guy named Mark about 2,000 years ago said something crazy about bright lights and clouds and dead people to try to get a new religion off the ground. And I want to ask, how does all of that, like the emptying of the universe uh, and friendships, the fact that your prayer and Bible stories might be fake, how does that make you feel? I'm, I'm wondering, because this is the way it feels for me, I'm wondering if it might feel familiar. Because James K. Smith describes the feeling of living in an emptied world this way. He says, quote, We feel a sense of loss and malaise in the wake of such disenchantment. The world doesn't feel like it's full of life, meaning, and purpose. It feels like Christmas as you get older. Like, fine, but not as special as it used to be. There's a, there's a quote up on, the walls, or on one of the walls in the Wellbeing Center. Uh, it says this. People need to know that they are loved, that they belong, and that their lives matter. And so if I could put it this way, it's not just that we feel a sense of loss, it's that we feel hungry. We feel hungry for a transcendence that's not just another lie that's going to get swept out from under us. We feel hungry for glory. So that brings me to my second question. What's the glory? Because when Jesus transfigures, uh, he looks beautiful, brilliant. The veil of his basic human form is pulled back, and we see him as he really is, in his mysterious, transcendent glory. And I was trying to imagine what this would be like, and the best analogy I could come up with was a thunderstorm. Uh, Like, imagine you're on top of a mountain, and this thunderstorm blows over, that uh, the clouds grow dark, the lightning starts flashing, the thunder starts booming. It's almost like nature comes alive and reveals something about God's glory in a really terrifying way. Oh, yeah, and add the presence of uh, two famous Bible figures and God's voice actually breaking in through the thunder. That's something of what... That's something of what... (laughs) Of what uh, the disciples would have been feeling... In the transfiguration. It's why uh, Mark adds the little note about uh, what Peter says being really stupid because he was terrified. He didn't know what to say. And that kind of experience, if we actually live through that, would change us. Uh, N.T. Wright, he's a biblical New Testament scholar, he puts it this way. He says that the transfiguration is a reminder of what most cultures have never forgotten that the world we live in has many layers, many, dim- many dimensions, and that sometimes these dimensions, normally hidden, may appear. Then like a child with a microscope, we can look for a moment into a different reality, 
gasp with wonder, and ever afterwards see everything differently. Uh, Similarly, John Mark McMillan, who's a Christian music artist, uh, puts it this way in one of his songs. He says, I concede eternity is pressing into time, even the material, it hums with the divine. And I believe the miraculous mundane is still begging to be seen. So if the story of Jesus transfiguring is true, and I believe that it is, it's a reminder that we haven't managed to empty all the transcendence out of our world. Our world still hums with the divine. But it's also more than that. Because in verse 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says something curious. He says, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Meaning, some of his disciples will see the kingdom of God come with power in their lifetimes. And verse 2 says this, And six days later, Jesus takes some of them up the mountain. And that verse is supposed to signal us that the transfiguration is connected to verse 1. Meaning, the transfiguration is the kingdom of God coming with power. So you see, for us and for Jesus' disciples, the transfiguration is not just seeing and experiencing a moment of glory. It's also a window into the coming glory. It's a window into the coming of the kingdom of God. So to go back to the beginning, the, whole, the point of this whole section of Mark might be something like glory will come, but suffering will come first. But it's like our specific story is saying, yes, suffering will come, but don't forget about the glory. That one day the kingdom of God will come in its fullness and Jesus will refill our world with all the transcendence and glory that it used to have. And so to us, we might feel hungry. Life might feel like a struggle against malaise and disappointment, but the malaise will not get the final word. The transfiguration is a reminder that there is transcendent glory bubbling beneath the surface of our reality, and that we haven't seen anything yet. We just have to wait a little bit longer. And that brings me to my third question. Will glory satisfy? Will this glory actually satisfy, or will it just be another disappointment that leaves us hungry for something else? Uh, A show that picks up on this is a show called The Good Place. It centers on how these bad people have been sent to the bad place, and they don't like the fact they've been sent to the bad place, so they want to go to the good place. And over the course of four or five seasons, they spend their time like finagling the laws of the universe to eventually work their way up into the good place. Uh, And it turns out, you know, once we're in season five, that the good place sucks, that it has no character that the people there are the epitome of goody two-shoes, like the kind of person who is so obsessed with being nice and perfect that they suck the fun out of all of life. Uh, The good place doesn't satisfy the character's hunger. They realize that life was more fun when they were together and that they had an end goal to work for. And once they got to the good place, there wasn't a whole lot left for them. Their life got boring and stale. And they realize that the only way, and I'm sorry, I'm spoiling the whole thing. The only way they can make their lives meaningful, (laughs) I hope you've already watched it, uh, is if they give their lives an actual end. Uh, 
So they set up this door that if you walk through it, you cease to exist in a burst of energy. Uh, and in the show, it's portrayed as this really happy ending for this group of friends that they realize that the thing that they wanted wasn't actually what they wanted and that they can find rest in, in ceasing to exist. And there's also something about how in the burst of energy, their energy goes and energizes someone else. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Like, and I know this seems like the popular thing to do, but I love this show and I hated the ending. Like, something inside of me revolted against that, saying, like, no, ceasing to exist in a burst of energy dust is not meaningful. Like, that's not satisfying. But as I was thinking about it, if the coming of the kingdom of God is like the good place, that it's nice, perfect, but sucks the fun out of life, then ceasing to exist might actually be preferable to living in that kind of kingdom forever. And as I say that, I hope that already, as we've been talking about glory, that something has woken up inside of you, that it might have started scratching an itch you didn't even know was there. Uh, Because my experience, as I've been studying for this and reading about this, Uh, As I read that N.T. Wright quote about uh, different dimensions and pulling back reality, and when I listened to that John Mark McMillan song, it feels like there's a part of my heart that almost leans forward. And even though I don't really understand what reality humming with the divine means, like, I want to know more. Like, it scratches some kind of itch. Like, I want a Christmas that is full and exciting. I want to see glory in a thunderstorm, and I want to see God's face through the eyes of my soul in prayer. I want to see Jesus coming back in all of his glory. And I want to know that I'm loved, that I belong, and that my life matters. Like, do you want that too? If you do, if you feel that kind of hunger... Like, let that hunger guide you home. Because the Bible doesn't tell us a lot of specifics about the kingdom of God, but it gives us a couple really good images. And I, I, I want to end with these two images. And as I'm reading, see if they start to feel, or see if they start to fill the hunger in your soul. The first one uh, comes from the book of Revelation. Uh, it says that our story will not end in a burst of energy dust. It will end like this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And Jesus, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The second image is from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 55. It says this. We shall be led in peace and go out with joy. And the hills before us will raise their voices, and the trees of the field will clap their hands as the land rejoices. And instead of the thorn now, the cypress towers. And instead of the briar, the myrtle blooms with a thousand flowers. 
and it will make a name, make a name for our God, a sign everlasting that will never be cut off. So the Lord plants justice, justice and praise to rise before the nation till the end of days. Jesus walked the road of suffering so he could bring you into his glory. And we might be suffering now in all of our hunger, malaise, and disappointment, but the glory will come. This is food for the journey, and this is also an invitation to you. Let's pray.